This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. I've always been a very driven numbers guy. I love looking at numbers and stats and models and building things. And and that was a real part of my interest, was to try and find out why my friends were dying in their late 50s and early 60s, what perhaps was causing that. Hello and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. We call it Llama. I'm Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Now, if you've ever heard the expression, the life of Riley, you probably think of someone living a carefree existence, having a good time, perhaps having it very easy without being bogged down by the mundane realities or even struggles of everyday life. Well, I hesitate to say that my guest today is living that life, but it's certainly the title of his book, The Life of Riley, Mastering the Five Secret Habits to Enjoy a Longer and Healthier Life, is Phil Riley's account of how he transformed his life by making some pretty dramatic lifestyle changes. And he joins me now from his home in the UK. Phil, welcome to the Llama Podcast. Thank you, Peter. Great to be here. Big what, fan. Thank you. It's great to talk to you. Whereabouts in the UK are you? We uh, we live in Leamington Spa, which is a lovely spa town about 100 miles north of London, very close to Stratford-upon-Avon, where William Shakespeare uh, lived and wrote some of his uh, most famous works, and uh, very close to the beautiful countryside of the Cotswolds. So certainly people from other parts of the, the world and the US will probably recognise those places. Uh, and, and not too, I was in London today for, for meeting. So it's uh, it's a beautiful part of the world, but it's it's very close to London and all that has to offer. So great, great place to live. Yeah, I remember it well, and it does sound beautiful. Do you live the life of Riley? Uh, I, I live a little bit of the life of Riley now. I don't work full time. I had a very, very... Uh, intense career as a senior media executive uh, running and building a uh, large couple of large radio groups in the UK. I've stopped doing that and I now consult with some firms. I'm on the board of some others. Uh, I do the odd bit of uh, charity work. I'm a trustee on a board of a children's hospice and, and I then spend some time uh, buying and renovating properties. We're just doing a big property here in Leamington Spa, a big old Georgian townhouse of the sort that people will would, would see in uh, in period uh, cinema and TV shows. We've bought one of those and are engaged in, in uh, renovating that. So a big project. Yeah, yeah that sounds good. Well, let's. Uh, we're going to talk about your journey, your journey towards a better health and lifestyle in a second, and your book, of course. But let's just talk about you. You spent uh, a lifetime in the broadcasting industry, British radio in particular, much like myself, although different areas of the industry. And uh, I'm curious, uh, just give us a little idea of what kind of life that has been, I guess, at times quite pressurised. Yeah, very pressurised. One of the funny rules in British life is you can't get car insurance if you work in the radio industry, because all the car insurers think that you're about to give Elton John a lift home in your car, so they don't want to run the risk. So uh, it's it's a, been a glamorous life in the sense of never having to really work hard, being in an industry where people are uh, paid to be happy and upbeat, 
uh, if you're in the radio business, you know, you, you want people to enjoy their work. You want you uh, if you've got presenters, you want them to be uh, the sort of people that, uh, that, that people like to spend time with. Uh, the industry itself is uh, full of hospitality. Uh, the, the clients that, whose adverts, adverts we, we uh, strive to get onto our radio stations, they're, they're always being entertained. So there's an awful lot of that type of life. It's been a great life, being in the broadcasting business, and radio in particular, which is a great passion of mine. It's been a, a fantastic life, but not without its downsides from the point of view of health and well-being, because it's a very stressful life, as, as most industries are these days. So you, are, you do put yourself under a lot of stress, and... Uh, it's one of those businesses where you can easily end up being out for lunch and out for dinner, and then the following day out for lunch and out for dinner, and the following day it's a breakfast, then a lunch, then a dinner, and of course plenty of booze to fuel those lunches and dinners. So you can find yourself entertaining and being entertained an awful lot, which sounds glamorous, but actually can become not only slightly tiresome, but is can be terribly damaging for your health over over a long period of time. Yeah. And would it be fair to say that during that time, during your career, your main focus was your work? Yes, I, definitely. I uh, rose to uh, a fairly you know, senior position fairly early on in my career. And uh, age 30, I was the managing director of a uh, a radio station that was in a lot of trouble up in Leeds, and that was a very pressured situation. Then a few years later, uh, I was headhunted to launch a brand new station in a very big market, Birmingham in the UK, uh, and, and build that radio station and others into one of the largest radio groups in the in the country. And that involved an awful lot of travelling around the country, spending nights away from home in hotels or nights in London. We we lived in the Midlands, but worked I worked in London, so there was an awful lot of uh, pressure on me and that did mean I spent less time thinking about being fit and healthy less time probably at home with the kids than I should have done uh, but, but I don't suspect I was any different to a lot of corporate executives who spend a lot of time on the road uh, doing you know those those sorts of jobs so I, I suspect I, I was pretty typical and by the time I got to 40 I was a smoker but I'd stopped smoking but I was by the time I was 40 clinically obese. Uh, my body mass index was 33. And I had not exercised for getting on for 15 years. I probably hadn't gone near a gym or a bike or a piece of lycra or a <laughs> trainer, got nothing like that for about 15 years. And, uh, and there were a couple of things that happened to me when I was about 40, which made me think, boy, I really do have to get myself back in shape. Were you aware that you were not living a healthy lifestyle and you just didn't care? Or was it simply something you didn't think about? I don't think I think about it. I think when you're in your 20s and 30s, I think you, A, you think you're immortal. And B, you are, particularly me, I was a type A personality, a typical senior executive. I was striving for something. Uh, and I, I wasn't going to stop until I you know, succeeded and achieved my aims. And I don't really think I was thinking about those other issues such as health. Because actually when you're in your 20s and in your 30s, your body's pretty healthy to begin with. So even if you abuse it a lot, you can get away with that. And I think it's only when you sort of tip into your forces that you wake up one morning and think, maybe I can't abuse my body quite as much as I have been. Yeah. So was there 
a moment? Was there a defining moment when you did realize, yes, you were clinically obese, you were chronically unfit? Was there something that happened to you or was it a slow dawning on you that really this sort of lifestyle had to change? Well, there were a couple of things. One was I arranged an away weekend for some of the senior team, the sort of bonding weekends that uh, you do where we all go and do exercises and climb trees and uh, all that sort of nonsense. Yes, yeah, you must have been and, dreading it. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was I was sucking into doing it by somebody else, but we did it as a team. And actually, it was it was very good. But um, the company that did it made us all wear these rather fetching yellow T-shirts. And I remember <laughs> looking at a picture of the of the team at the end of the weekend, and I'm just like this beached whale in this yellow T-shirt. And I'm thinking, gosh, I didn't realise quite how heavy and overweight I was. And and around the same time, I had one of the most unnerving experiences of uh, my eyesight's not great. And I was walking down a long corridor in a hotel, one of these fancy hotels. And at the end of the hotel, there was a an ornate mirror. And I can, I can remember, I didn't realize it was a mirror. And I was just walking down the corridor thinking, boy, there's a big fat person walking towards me. And it wasn't until I got close to the mirror that I realized that the big fat person was me. Uh, and that really made me think, actually, maybe I need to do something about this. So that was the the start for me of a long journey towards getting my life in order. And and, uh, probably for the first 10, 12, 14 years of that, I was just focused on weight and not some of the other things. And uh, I think more more recently, and certainly the the topic of the book itself was some things that happened to me in my early 50s. Well, I I read in the book that, uh, and this is obviously something that happens to most of us, uh, all of us really, when we get to a certain age, that you start losing people in your life and uh, for different reasons. And I know this happened to you and made quite a, a significant impact on you. And we'll continue this conversation in just a moment. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we're the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. It really did. It was uh, about five years ago, 2013, and three friends, I was 54 at the time, 53, 54, and three friends and colleagues of mine all died within a six-month period. Now, one was about the same age as me, one was a bit older in his late 50s then, and one was in his early 60s. But they were all, I would have said they were contemporaries, uh, and they were all people that I'd worked with at various points in my career. Uh, and they all died, slightly different causes for all of them, but uh, but underlying it, I would say there were probably the sort of health issues that I talk about in the book that would apply that would have applied to all three of them. Now, these three uh, guys, they all died within six months of each other. In the middle of that, my mother died, and she was 77, and she died of emphysema, and she'd been a lifelong smoker. Uh, and although I was obviously uh, tragically upset by her death, I was also extremely frustrated because I'd been spending the last 25 years years trying to persuade her to stop smoking and, and had clearly not succeeded um, and at the same time I, I tell a story in the book I had a, a, a particularly 
a nasty accident where I, I sliced my forearm open. Uh, you, most uh, most listeners will recall that scene in the uh, in Terminator where Arnie Schwarzenegger yes. slices the arm. Well, I did the same thing, and it was a very peculiar accident, which I won't go into the details of, but I literally, I've got a six-inch scar uh, uh, on my forearm where I literally sliced the skin open, and the, the forearm literally popped open, and you could see the muscle and the tendon and the bone and everything. And the thing that sliced my arm open I was probably half an inch away from this thing catching on uh, my ulna or my uh, one of my arteries and slicing that uh, artery open. And I was on my own in the garden a few hundred yards away from the house. I, I could easily had had this thing been six inches or uh, half an inch uh, one way or the other, could have sliced, sliced a... Um, a vessel and, and bled out in the corner of the garden. And I did for two or three days, two or three nights after that, really have a bit of post-traumatic stress because it was such mm. a, a dramatic uh, incident in my life. So all of those things, they all happened within about six or nine months of each other. And I got out of the, the end of them all thinking, well, some friends of mine have died. I've had a really lucky escape. My mum's died. What does it all mean? And, and that, I think, then got me thinking much more, in a much more logical and sensible and rational manner about what it is about how we live our lives that is affecting our ability to get to a, a healthy, ripe old age. And, and that was that was then the subject of a couple of years of fairly intense research on my part. So uh, all those things that happened, they helped you, I think, maybe count your blessings and put things yeah, in sure. perspective. So what, sure. did you, what did you do? You obviously, you had this realisation that things had to change. What did you do? Well, I did two things. I mean, one is I started to think about things that I wanted to change myself. But more importantly for me, I was so, in, I got so interested in it uh, and I was winding down the, the work element of my life a bit. We were in the process of selling the, the business that I was running, but I, I knew that that was going to come to an end shortly thereafter. Um, I thought, well, I've got a bit of time and I want to explore this in a bit more detail. So I started to think about what it was that was causing people not to get to the ripe old age and how bad those effects were. And I, I started to think, well, we, we know that drinking too much is bad for you. We know that smoking is bad for you. We know that perhaps being significantly overweight is bad for you. But what are the relative effects of those things? And how important are they all in in you getting or not getting to a ripe old age? And so I started to do a bit more digging. I've always been a very driven numbers guy. I love looking at numbers and stats and models and building things. And, And that was a real... Uh, part of my interest was just to sort of delve into all of that uh, to try and find out why uh, my friends were dying in their late 50s and early 60s, what what perhaps was causing that and why you know, did my mum who died at 77, was that actually not a bad age for her given that she was uh, a smoker or could she have possibly lived longer or had she gotten an extra few years beyond what she was entitled to and that was what led me to not only uh, think about that in more detail and build a, a sort of model of life expectancy, but also to to start to make some changes myself, uh, so that I could be part of um, those people that live to the the ripe old age that I think we could all aspire to live to if we. Uh, lived our lives healthily. Yeah, and and one thing I, I guess that might have been surprising to you is that at the age of seventy-seven, your mother was about maybe just slightly younger, but the average life expectancy 
for someone in the UK, which is still around, well, you tell me, 78 to 80 years old, is well, pretty much an average. Yeah, what's interesting is, so the average UK, the average uh, age in the UK is widely quoted at 79, but I go into a boring amount of stats in the book, really, about how that 79 number isn't really the right number. The right number that adults should be focused on uh, is, a num- uh, is a higher number, is about 84, um, because... The 79 number, it includes the tragic early deaths of babies that die just after birth and and children who die of very rare diseases. Um, And they're obviously uh, at a personal and individual level tragedies. But from a population perspective, particularly when you're doing um, arithmetic averages, those very early deaths, which are nothing to do with lifestyle, they're all to do with illness and in many cases quite rare illnesses, they do drag an average number down. And also in the UK for a, for a long period, and I suspect this might change, but for a long period we ignored people who got to 100. Once you got to 100, you fell off the st- uh, statistics. Mm. Uh, we just didn't forecast people living beyond 100 because people didn't used to live beyond 100. Now actually they do, and I suspect the Office for National Statistics is, is going to have to change its methodology but all we used to do was just publish this zero to 100 figure and that's where if you do an arithmetic average of zero to 100 that's where the 79 comes out but if you actually just say let's focus on people who've got to the age of 30 i who who've not uh, died in in uh, very, very young uh, unusual circumstances um so if you just look at adults from the age of 30 on and you count the people that do get to 100 because they're important because they're part of the overall picture actually the average lifespan uh, median lifespan which is a better measure than than the arithmetic being the median is 84 in fact it's 82 for men 86 for women 84 is the overall number now my mum was a smoker and that was one of the things that i wanted to know. i knew smokers in general died younger than non-smokers and so i started to unpick that uh, and one of the difficulties in trying to unpick all these uh, statistics is the pe- the uh, the people that die the youngest tend to be people who are very heavy drinkers uh, it, it's certainly the particular uh, uh, deadly sin if you like that that uh, drives very young deaths but the very heavy drinkers and we are here talking about people that are consuming a lot of alcohol maybe five percent of men one and a half percent of women they're also very likely to be smokers now what that does is it drags the smoking uh, mortality rates down, uh, and the average smoker uh, dies around the age of 74. But that's in large in large part that's dragged down by these heavy drinking smokers. In fact, my mum didn't hardly drink at all. She maybe had a whiskey once or twice a week. And actually, uh, these sober smokers, which is how I describe them in the book. Um, who are the majority of smokers? The majority of smokers don't drink to excess. They drink, some of them, but they don't drink to excess. Those sober smokers actually, amazingly, w- will live to 78 or 79. And that probably comes as a big surprise to people. The average life expectancy of a sober smoker is in the high 70s. Um, uh, it's still a long way below uh, people that don't smoke, but it's perhaps a bit higher than people uh, anticipate. But of course, and I know you understand this, uh, life span and health span are two very two different things. Different. Doesn't, necess- doesn't necessarily mean that if you get to 78, 80 years old as a smoker, perhaps as someone who drinks, because the, the likelihood is that you will have a number of other conditions or a number of conditions, diseases at that stage in your life that mean that you, the quality of your life 
probably isn't that great. No, absolutely. And and if, if I try and describe the stats in a very simplified way, the bottom half of the life expectancy uh, uh, portfolio, um, which is by and large populated by people who are either heavy drinkers or smokers or, or particularly obese. So roughly that bottom half, they, those three categories probably make up about 40% of the population. But if you, if you sort of split, split people in half, the bottom half of the population have an average life expectancy of about 75. And most of them are in those categories and they probably have eight to 10 years of ill health before they die. Now, that ill health might be just having to pop a few pills, but it's probably a bit more than that. We'll get more serious as you go on. So you could say that the people in the bottom half of the life expectancy curve may be dying in their mid-70s, but are starting to feel ill or having to rely on the health service and rely on um, uh, pills and medication from maybe their mid to late 60s onwards. The top half, however, have an average life expectancy of around 90. And not only do they live to 90, most of them are probably still pretty physically fit and active until their mid-80s. So when you look at bottom versus top in terms of healthy life, you're comparing mid-60s to mid-80s. So there's a 20-year gap between the bottom half, the average healthy life expectancy of somebody in the bottom half of the population versus somebody in the top half. And that extra 20 years, well, that's, uh, to me, I'm 58 an extra 20 years is a lifetime to me. I want to grab that extra 20, 25 years if I can. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons. I, I, I actually, I dis, it's funny, when I got to the end of writing my book, I decided actually I'd actually written it for me, but I'd written it for me age 30 or 35. Right. That, that, that's often a question I ask yeah. people is, if you could give some advice to your 20-year-old or 30-year-old self, what would it be? And I, essentially for you, it's all in this book here. Yeah, it was. I realised when I finished writing it, I was it was telling that that sort of hard charging business executive who was living a, uh, a, the life the life of Riley in some senses in his twenties and thirties that maybe if he made a few lifestyle changes, he would get himself in a much better position uh, by the time he got to his late fifties. Now, I'm pleased to say that actually, a lot of evidence supports the very encouraging conclusion uh, that no matter what age you are. If you make lifestyle changes, they can have an almost immediate beneficial effect. Cumulatively, you're not going to get as much benefit if you make everything age 60 than you would if you made it age 30. Clearly, if you get a, another 30 years of, of healthier lifestyle, you're probably going to get a bit more benefit at the end. But even age 60 or 65, making uh, healthy lifestyle changes can have an immediate benefit. And that was a real real encouragement to me that uh, that it's never too late to make some changes. Yeah, and I hear this time and time again on this podcast, people that I talk to who uh, might have been in similar situations to you and will make those lifestyle changes. And even if it is just getting up and walking for 10 minutes a day and, and increasing that duration over a period of, of weeks and months, people always, I mean, without exception, will say that it, it vastly improves their lives. So I'm interested from your perspective, you obviously had the interest in in mathematics and statistics and, and numbers to to get things in perspective for yourself. So exactly what did you do to turn things around for yourself? Uh, the interesting thing was I, I, I ended up putting everybody into sort of five tribes. Um, tribe one are these very, very heavy drinkers. Tribe two are the smokers. 
tribe three are people who are very uh, very overweight, obese. Tribe four are sedentary people who don't do any of those actively negative things, but maybe just don't get off the couch often enough. And then you're left with this tribe five at the end who are probably about 20% of the population who don't have the bad habits and are actually relatively physically active. And I said to myself, I need to get into tribe five. What do I need to do? And I came up with a set of uh, principles that I thought, based on the evidence that I saw, would help uh, uh, me continue to lose weight. Uh, my weight, had, I, I, I'd, I'd certainly, uh, from that sort of frightening first burst when I was 40, when I knew I was clinically obese, I'd lost a big chunk of weight. But over time, some of that had gone back on. So I decided to re-energize myself and bring the weight back off. Um, and I, I developed a scheme that a, helped me lose the weight. B, made sure that I was being physically active all the time. Uh, C, tempered my alcohol intake as far as I possibly could, although that probably is still my weakness. I think we all have a weakness, and my weakness is definitely a very nice bottle of red. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Uh, Which isn't just, necessarily bad for you. It, it isn't, although maybe sometimes the amount that I consume, it, it might be. Right. Um, but, uh, but, but also, there were, there were elements when I started to examine all the data there were there were some things that popped out of that data such as um the mistaken belief that somehow you should eat little and often uh when actually the real evidence says you should eat healthily but not that frequently uh and so one of the i I produced a set a, a very simple set of guidelines and i said look if you follow these guidelines you only need to follow them maybe four or five days a week um you ought to be able to get most of the benefits that that all the evidence suggests are going to give you that best shot of getting into uh, Tribe Five. So it was it was simple things like um, not having lunch, having breakfast, and then having dinner. Uh, but so going longer between meals because that allows your body to use up the energy that you've put in there, um, allows it to start to trigger some of the fat burning processes. Um, Make, and one of the benefits of not having lunch for me is it gives you an opportunity to get out of the office or the house for half an hour and go for a walk. Uh, I know you walk in the mornings, Peter, mm. but uh, uh, I, I certainly walk lunchtimes, and I, I, and I do it because we've got a dog and we've just got to get the dog out of the house. <laughs> um, but uh, a half-hour walk every day at a reasonable pace actually you know, ticks the box. If you can do that five, four, five times a week, walk for half an hour at a pretty reasonable pace, boy, you are so much further along the path to health and fitness than most of the population. Um, you, know, you don't need to worry about being a super fit triathlete to get into my tribe five. You just need to get off your backside, put a pair of trainers on and get out of the house and go walk at a reasonable pace for 20 minutes, 25 minutes, 30 minutes and try and do it four or five times a week. And actually, once you start doing that, you then build up the the belief that actually you can walk anywhere. And I now regularly where if I go to London, for example, I said we're 70 miles away. So the, the train to London is an hour, hour and a quarter. And w- when I get off, I will regularly get a train that gets me in half an hour, 45 minutes before the meeting that I'm due to go to, and, and I'll walk to the meeting. Uh, so building in those extra benefits, get I know it's a sort of cliche, but getting off the 
tube or the bus or parking half a mile away from your office and putting a half a mile walk in there and back every day those are those are the sorts of things that anybody can do yeah i agree uh, they're, they're all they're all simple and and in many respects tried and, and tested things that you can do that make a, a significant difference just going back to your uh, eating regime your feeding regime do you yeah. uh, operate on a sort of time restricted schedule so that you will start eating at a certain time and end at a certain time in the day well what's interesting when i wrote the uh, book i proposed a fairly simple schedule which was monday tuesday wednesday thursday have have something for breakfast and then something for dinner and breakfast might be seven eight nine o'clock in the morning for me it's probably a little later because i'm not getting up to to rush out to an office if i work uh, i'm probably working from home certainly uh, most of the time uh, and then dinner would be a typically six six thirty at night. Um, so there's, there are two reasonable gaps between those meals. Now that was when I wrote the book. I have to say, since then I've done more reading and more thinking, and uh, try to follow up on, on on more of the ongoing scientific research into this area. And actually, of late, I've taken to being a bit more bullish about it. Uh, and now, two or three days a week, um, I actually only have the one meal a day. So yesterday is a, a good example. Um, so, uh, I, you know, had dinner the night before, uh, and then went to bed and got up and just didn't eat until dinner time yesterday. Um, and the first couple of times I did it, it was slightly weird. You know, there's definitely a, if you've never done it before, there's a really weird thing of thinking, gosh, I'm going to go 24 hours without eating. But actually, once you've done it a couple of times, you realize it isn't that difficult. And actually doing an extended fast of that nature um, really does, as, as you will know from the research and the people you've had on this pod, you know, there's lots of evidence that uh, going without uh, calorific intake for a slightly longer period can kickstart all sorts of chemical processes inside the body that help repair mm. cells and repair tissue. Uh, and being able to do that two or three times a week, A, you get that cellular regeneration benefit, but you also are, are obviously cutting down on the on the sheer number of calories that you're eating you you definitely are reducing your intake um and the the, the fewer opportunities you have to eat the less likely you are to end up having taken in overall more calories than your body can cope with and the more likely you are to be triggering some some of the fat burning processes that that help you know get rid of uh, some of that excess weight and do you feel the mental benefits of that the mental agility that so many people talk about certainly i do and it's, it's often difficult to get across to people who are dead set against the idea of going without food for a, what seems to many people a relatively long period of time it, it isn't to me anymore but do you feel actually better on those days once you've got into that hunger period or maybe got over over one or two of the waves of hunger and you've you've sat them out as it were and you're getting towards the end of the day how do you feel i, I feel okay i can't claim that i feel sharper as a result and, and it may just be it may just be one of those circadian rhythm things i'm i'm definitely as far as mental alertness is concerned i'm a i'm a morning person i like to if i've got tasks to do or a paper to write or some spreadsheet work to do on a business that I'm involved in. I like to get that done first thing in the morning um, when I'm really alert. So if my fast is sort of running towards its peak in the late, mid to late afternoon, I'm probably not at that point 
going to be quite as engaged in activities that require that degree of mental alertness. So I don't, I, I, I certainly don't notice any negative effects of it. I mean, that's, I think the main point is it's, it's actually now become fairly routine for me. It's a fairly straightforward thing to do uh, to think that I'm going to go 24 hours without uh, food and then enjoy something in the evening. In fact, there's a there's a very well-known uh, newspaper columnist in the UK called Janen Ganesh who writes for the Financial Times. In fact, I think he's moving to Washington, so you may see his byline in the Washington Post uh, in the future. But uh, I know he um, has written uh, about his own eating habits, and he only eats once a day. Uh, and he said it really makes you focus on that meal. It really makes you focus on making sure that that meal is the best quality, that you're eating great food. Because if you're only going to eat once a day, mm. you really can't afford for it to be rubbish. You've really got to think this has got to be good. Um, and Stanley McChrystal, I know, is another guy who only eats once a day, the the, the U.S. general. So yeah. there are lots of people out there who uh, are trying this, and uh, and it does seem to work for them. I don't think you want to do it every day. I do it. Uh, what I my routine now. The one thing that I've changed again. The other thing I've changed since the book is I I have taken more of an active interest because I'm now 58, almost 59. Taken more of an active interest in going to the gym and doing resistance work. Uh, I've, I've come to the conclusion again, based on looking at a fair bit of evidence, that um, although. Uh, being active physically every day is an absolute key base. Uh, I think there are some real benefits from doing resistance work, from putting your body under that intense uh, stress and strain that involves you know lifting weights or doing squats or whatever. I don't do um, uh, massive workouts. I go for 20 minutes, probably twice a week, and I've got a set routine of a few exercises that I do I don't do many of them I just do one set maybe eight or ten repetitions until I can't do any more uh, I'm in and out as I say in 20 or 25 minutes I only do that twice a week and on those days and I do that first thing in the morning uh, I'll come home and have some breakfast probably some scrambled eggs or something. So, so something you know you want to refuel I think immediately after something like that but on days when I'm not doing that and I'm old enough that I can't do that every day or even every other day you know I, I go and do it for the next couple of days my body's aching a bit so <laughs> yeah twice a week twice a week is enough for me but all, yeah, again there's lots of evidence um to support the thesis that you really need to be doing some of this because it helps strengthen your bone density uh keeps your muscles uh, active keeps you a bit more supple uh, and certainly when you look at people who get to uh, an older age who are infirm, actually one of the things that can really knock people uh, sideways and, and really take them out of good health into ill health early is having a fall yeah. or an accident. Um, and, and in fact, my, my, my mother was uh, about a year before she died. She had a very, very bad accident and uh, she, she had very brittle bones. She was very thin. Uh, and uh, she had osteoporosis, and, and she had a very bad accident and, and crushed some vertebrae in her back. Uh, and that definitely was the trigger, I think. She was sort of coping until then, but that particular incident just knocked her sideways. She herself, because she was so uh, thin, didn't have the, if you like, the reserves of fat on her body to be able to ride that out. And I think that was the the the, the precursor to the, the the worsening of her emphysema and her her death so i i do think 
you owe it to yourself as you're getting into your 60s to think i need to be i just need to be strong yeah. uh, i need to be you know i need to feel uh, strong as well as fit i need to feel um, you know relatively strong yeah i couldn't agree more now phil i should say you're not a doctor and you're not a nutritionist and, and uh, not, no, neither not, am i no. and and the regime that you follow the one that i follow they may work for us but not necessarily for everyone. And I always say that on this podcast, we don't offer advice, we share, we discuss ideas. But obviously, if you're considering a change in your diet or your exercise regime, you should first speak to your doctor. And with that in mind, I'm curious what sort of a medical advice you took when you were changing things, and especially writing the book. Well, I have to be honest and say I didn't take too much direct advice from my doctors. I, I sometimes am shocked by, I, I go for regular physical checkups. Uh, so every couple of years, for the last 15, 20 years, as one of the perks of being a senior executive in a major company, they want to make sure you're not about to keel over. So they do send you away once every couple of years to check that your heart's still beating. Um, so I've, I've had the benefit of having those regular health checks. So I know that I'm, you know, I'm in reasonably good shape. But I, I do find it very depressing that almost every time I go to the doctor, 50, 60% of the doctors I go and see are palpably unfit themselves and unhealthy, carrying too much weight. And clearly, I have to say, not in a position to give me or anybody else, I feel, uh, really valid um, ideas and thoughts on good health. Uh, Akira, okay, just going back to one thing you just said, when you said you got regular checkups uh, paid for by your employer, w- were you getting those checkups when you were obese and chronically unfit? You say just to make sure your heart was still beating, but w- the fact that you were very unhealthy at that time, didn't that come to light? Uh, they, I'm trying to think, I probably went back, it was maybe only 12, 14 years, so I possibly didn't start having them until I'd gotten over the most obese part of my life right. i suspect we did i suspect they i'm trying to think i think the company thought actually under the age of 40 you're probably not going to keel over it's only those people when they get to 40 that we better start checking so i think those health checks started at about the time when i started to take a bit more uh, control myself right um but i do so uh i mean it's a bit you're right you shouldn't ever do anything without checking with your doctor but I don't, I do, don't think the general practitioners in the UK, the sort of people that you go to a health centre about, I, I'm not sure they're anywhere near as up to date on on what constitutes really solid, leading edge uh, advice in terms of health and fitness as per, perhaps many of the people that you you have on your podcast. Um, and, and I do think it's a very fast evolving world, and certainly. I think some of the public health advice that we get in the UK and possibly you, you see in, in the US and other parts of the world, it's, it's very mixed, I think. Some of it's good, but some of it is, is very nanny statish, uh, and people will look at some of that advice and actually turn away from the whole spectrum of public health because they can see through what these people are trying to do. Um, so I do think that's an area where an awful lot more work needs to be done to try and get the, the sort of advice that people need 
in 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 the right shape for them because i don't think that uh, public health authorities really do a good job at the moment yeah and it's not just you saying that i've had many doctors on this podcast saying exactly the same thing that they have come to understand perhaps later in their careers that they've been frankly doing a lot of it wrong and that they may may have had 30 minutes or an hour of nutrition education during their training as a doctor which they now realize of course was a ridiculously uh, short time to spend on such a, a crucial aspect of their training in, in terms of preventative health. So uh, th- there's a great body of opinion that, that has that same view. Uh, yeah, and, and one of the frustrations for me is that we sometimes have a great opportunity to try and do better and miss it. And I'll give you a great example. In the UK, there are about 20,000 general medical practices. And the UK government uh, a few years ago decided that it wanted to track the health of uh, everybody who was over the age of 55. And it said to everybody over 55, uh, we want you to go in and have a health check with the, with the nurse practitioner in the medical centre. Very sensible move. And I went and had mine. And I was mortified because the nurse practitioner took my weight on a pair of probably 30-year-old Salter weighing scales, which were clearly not calibrated properly. Uh, and which uh, um, and which were uh, you know an old mechanical spring set you know the ones where you could hear the spring uh, as you step on the scales and I thought um, a a set of modern Tanita and there are other manufacturers around but Tanita electronic body fat measurement scales would probably cost you thirty pounds thirty forty dollars and you could kit out the entire uh, 20,000 medical practitioners in the UK for about half a million pounds. Mm. And you could therefore test the body fat percentage, forget BMI, because we all know that that's a very um, uh, imperfect uh, surrogate, but we could actually get the body fat percentage for everybody over the age of 55, give them that number, tell them what it meant for them and their health. Uh, And we weren't doing it because we hadn't invested a tiny sum of money. And in fact, I suspect Tanita or another scale manufacturer would probably have given the scales for free to the NHS because it would have been such a dramatic uh, moment for them. They'd have got PR out of it. People who who would go to the uh, um, their doctors would think, actually, that's really interesting. I might go and buy one myself. So I think as a as a country, a public health service, we missed a huge uh, opportunity there to do something dramatic to improve what people know about their bodies and their health. Because BMI is the number that is most often quoted. And I I talked about it in my book, and it's it's very frustrating for me because it's a very imperfect number. Uh, It suffers from a number of key flaws, but it's the only number we've got. So when you look at some of the public health advice, and it's based on BMI, I think it's, well, it's okay, but it's not perfect because what we should be talking to people about is what's what percentage of your body is, is fat that's the key not not your bmi yeah i agree it is it is quite primitive and i think all of this how you describe the scenario that is kind of depressing when we're living in this age of body computing and measuring biomarkers through our watches and and all the technology that yeah. is available to us and you're talking about upgrading a pair of weighing scales uh, from weighing 30 scales. years yeah. ago it's crazy. The, the, the best thing I think that's happened to me 
uh, in terms of the ability to measure. I've got three KPIs that I use on a pretty much daily basis. Uh, one is how many steps I've taken. So I've got a Fitbit. Other machines are available. I don't want to be particularly uh, plugging Fitbit. but uh, I, So I have a Fitbit uh, watch. It tells me how many steps a day I've taken. I know that I've got a stride length of about 80 centimeters. So as long as I'm doing 8,000 to 8,500 steps, that's about six and, six, six and a half kilometers. That's about four miles. That's me. I'm happy. Um, so that's one KPI. The let, let, me just, KPI let me just ask you about yeah. that because I, I count steps as well. Many, many, many people yeah. do. And we all have different ways of achieving our daily goals, whether daily it's to goal. try to do a big walk, an hour-long walk in the morning or to spread yeah. out through the day. Do you have a regime? Uh, I Well, we, we, I probably, if I'm at home, we'll walk certainly every day with the dog. There's a two-mile walk that we do every day with the dog. Um, uh, we will walk into town. We, we live on the on the edge of town. We walk into town if we're going out to the cinema or going out for a meal. Uh, I walk to the railway station. That's probably about a mile to the station, a mile back. It's a 15-minute walk for me. Um, so there's no set routine, but we just try and build walking into everything we do. Lots of opportunities, now, yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? That, you know, uh, The one thing I really dislike about the public health movement is um, is arbitrary targets set on very round numbers. So I'm not convinced, for example, that obesity starts at a BMI of 30, but that's where we are, that's what everybody thinks. Uh, Why? Because it happens to be a round number. Um, But interestingly, the 10,000 steps round number is is quite interesting because actually for an averagely sized person, that's probably about four miles a day, and that's probably about right. I think an active person who gets in a good two-mile walk and then spends another two miles during the course of a day going about their general business has probably ticked the box at about 10,000 steps. So that's not that's quite interesting. However, I know for me, I take fewer steps, but they're longer because I'm very tall, as yeah. you know. I'm six foot five, um, about, you know, almost two metres tall. So my, my, I know my your stride length is about 40% of your height. So I know my stride length is 80 centimetres. So I know that if I'm doing eight to eight and a half thousand steps, I'm clocking up you know, good. Well, I'm just checking my thing now. I can tell you, I've, I've so far today, I've done eleven thousand two hundred. So I'm way over for the day. Um, so that's one of my KPIs. I weigh myself every morning. I'm a bit anal about it, a bit analytical, um, but, but I don't do very much about it. I weigh myself every morning. I look at my weight and my body fat percentage. I put them in a spreadsheet that I've got that's been going back over five years. I've got every day's uh, tally in there. And, and I know if I'm over, I need to work a bit harder to get myself back to where I want to be. Um, so the, it's the body fat percentage for me is the, is the second KPI as opposed to my weight. Because my weight's actually gone up a bit because I've been going to the gym and lifting weights and trying to put a bit more muscle on. My body, you know, my underlying lean mass has, has increased a bit. So, um, so I, I focus much more on, on the body fat percentage. And the third thing, and the, perhaps the most important KPI, and the reason I would recommend anybody should buy a Fitbit or a similar device, is to be able to measure my resting heart rate. Uh, and, and I think of all the things that I talked about in the book and I think about now, I think your resting heart rate is the single biggest determinant of whether you are going to, uh, all of the things being equal, live to a ripe old age. Because it's not that I'm convinced about it, because no one could ever prove this one way or the other. But I, I suspect that we have evolved as a species over many millions of years um, a fantastically powerful pump in the heart. Mm. It's brilliant. And it probably pumps about 
four and a half billion times over our lifetime. Uh, for the average person who's got a resting heart rate of 70 in the low 70s, um, whose heart rate obviously goes up during the day, they, their heart probably beats 50 million times a year. So over the course of a 90-year potential lifespan, that probably is four and a half billion beats. Now, the reason why I think getting a Fitbit and measuring your resting heart rate is so important is I think your heart is, is almost the limiting factor for your life expectancy. If other things don't go wrong, it's your heart that will get you in the end. So actually, if you can bring down your resting heart rate, your heart might still only have the four and a half billion beats in it that somebody else's heart has, but actually it might get to the four and a half billionth a lot longer because you're, it's, it's not having to work so hard at night during the day. And I think that's the one that, that of the KPIs for me, it's the one I check the most. I just like to have that mental image because I'm the same as you. I follow my resting heart rate and, and I'm I'm lucky. Mine is, is, what is yours? Mine's 49. And I imagine my heart just having many, many more beats left. It's just a little uh, image I, I, in my mind that it can keep going on a bit yeah. longer. And, and, and mine is, I think, 56 and below is athlete. So I'm one above an athlete, but that's fine for me. And, and what I would say is... I have done. I have achieved that, and I, I obviously don't know what it was 15 years ago because we didn't have Fitbits 15 years ago. Yeah. But I, I know I, my resting heart rate is at 57, and that is based on me being actually pretty useless at most athletic endeavours. I mean, I have to say, I go to the gym, I lift weights. I don't lift very, very heavy weights. I'm not a mesomorph with muscles bulging out. Um, I ride a bike. Particularly, we, we have a, a place in Mallorca that we go to and the lovely mountain riding there. I ride it, but I would probably always be the slowest person in a group. I'm not very fast on the bike. I don't run. I walk, uh, and I walk quickly, but the only reason I walk quickly is because my legs are longer than everybody else's. I'm not a sporty person. And yet, by having gotten into the habit over a 10, 15, 18-year period of being active all the time, I've managed to bring my heart rate down. And I think that's a, that should be a real encouragement for anybody who thinks, I'm just not very good at it. You don't need to be very good. No, you don't you need to be good at it. And, you, and, you just need to do it. You just need to do it. Yeah, exactly. And and I have and I think my heart rate is low because my sports of choice have been endurance sports and I, I ran marathons for a number of years and, and shorter running distances. And I think that's stood me in good stead. I don't do yeah. so many long distance runs these days, but I, I think that's what certainly helped me. And uh, I still do triathlons, relatively short distances. And I don't care that I'm relatively slow compared with the past. I, I enjoy the fact that I, I can get around the course and feel good at the end of it. Absolutely. The, the fact, the best sporting moment of my life, I used to do triathlons. I don't anymore because, I, because I'm so tall, my, my knees and hips just can't take the running. So I've, I've stopped doing them. But the best moment of my life was about uh, 13, 14 years ago when I was doing them in my early 40s when I got fit. Um, and I did a triathlon called the Vitruvian. It's in a, uh, out in Leicestershire in the UK. And it, uh, it was an Olympic-length triathlon. So it was about a mile and a half outdoor open water swim, 25-mile uh, bike ride, and then a 10K run. And I came dead last. <laughs> um, but the great thing was, because it was a triathlon where everybody started at the same time, because I came dead last, I was the last person to cross the finish line. And the commentator, uh, there was a you know, chap on a microphone commentating everybody and said, here's the last, let's give the last guy through a big round of applause, Bill Riley. And it was fantastic. And everybody turned around and applauded me. I thought, that's the only time I'm ever going to be applauded for a sporting <laughs> endeavour. And it was for coming last. So, yeah. uh, so you, know, you can get a great 
uh, heart rate by not being very good, but just by putting in the time and the effort. I just want to go back to uh, something you were talking about just now, keeping spreadsheets and keeping your own data every day, the sort of geeky side of what you do and what I do. Do you enjoy that? I do, uh, because I'm a, a bit of a geek. And, and I think we, we shouldn't put people off who aren't geeks, because the great thing about, certainly about these these sort of Fitbit devices, and even just a, a, an iPhone these days, is they can track so much and keep it for you. You don't need to do that. Yeah. I mean, I do, you know, I've got my spreadsheet's got my weight, uh, body fat percentage, and then it, and then I, to be honest, I always do a seven-day average. I don't, I think individual days can fluctuate too much. So I look at my seven-day average, I compare it to the best ever, I compare it to where I was when I came back from a particular holiday, have I improved, have I got worse? But that's just me, and that's the type of person uh, that I am. But I don't think, I don't think you need that as part of your makeup in order to think actually being healthy uh, can be a great thing. Uh, you know, just put, just putting a pair of trainers on, going out for a walk every day, and feeling like you've come back and you've actually done it. That's all you need to do. As you know, as long as you can crack some of those other things about not not being a boozer every night of the week and not smoking and you know getting your weight under control. And and we, I think we focus perhaps too much. What's interesting, I think we focus perhaps too much on being on people being aspirationally too thin. And and a lot of the evidence is that carrying a little bit of weight is actually a good thing certainly as you get a bit older if you look at the mortality rates uh, compared to bmi which we know is a not not the most perfect measure but the best bmi for people is actually in and around the mid-20s if you're too skinny uh, you can find yourself like my mum did uh, having uh, an acute illness or an accident or something goes wrong with you and because you haven't got any reserves your body's not capable of taking in energy at the same rate because it's so busy trying to fight off the infection or repair the damage that you've caused. And if you haven't got a bit of fat reserve in there, you can, you know, you can find yourself running out of energy. Um, so carrying a little bit of weight is not a bad thing. So I, I don't think people need to think, crikey, the only way of getting into your late 80s or early 90s is to be super slim. It, it isn't. It's just not to be um, so so overweight that you're pushing the boundaries the other way. Phil, it's a great book. There's a lot more detail, obviously, inside. I just want to ask you one final question. And we kind of touched on this, I think, at the beginning. But what is your longevity goal now? Do you have a target in mind? Do you have an image of yourself in in your 90s or even over 100? Well, I've, I've said to the kids that I want to get to 90 just to deprive them of uh, the, the uh, enjoyment of all the assets that I've built up in my life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, no. I think getting to 90 is is uh, is the goal for me, and certainly the goal for Jean, my wife, and we, you know, we we both egg each other on to be reasonably fit and healthy. Um, and uh, I've, that means I've got 30 years left uh, of being physically active and hopefully mentally active. Um, and I think there are lots of things left for me to do, and I'm trying to crack on and do them. And I would like to. I think in this sort of. Uh, third age that people get to when they get to my age they want to do less of being a full-time person and more of trying to mix activity with holiday and going and seeing the world and and uh, and and also being a parent and a grandparent i talk about it in the book and i think it's very important that, that it, i think one of the most powerful psychological reasons for wanting to maintain fitness is to think well actually if you can get another 10 15 20 years then 
that's another generation of your family that you'll be around to see grow up and into adulthood and that for me is very powerful i don't have any grandkids yet my kids uh, are in their early 20s they, they haven't started families uh, we uh, we obviously hope at some point they will and that they'll have grandkids and i think well i'd like to be around to maybe see those grandkids you know get on a bit and um, and start to live their lives so that for me is a really powerful motivator to think yeah i'm going to carry on lifting those weights and walking the dog and trying not to drink a bottle of wine every night um, and, uh, and eat more healthily um, in order to get there. They're all great aspirations. Phil, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks, Peter. It's been great to talk to you. That's Phil Riley, author of The Life of Riley, and I will put details of the book in the show notes for this episode. You'll find them at the Llama Podcast website. That's llamapodcast.com, double L-A-M-A podcast.com. You'll also find us at Llama Podcast in social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Many thanks for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.